Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Ibrahim Bashir on the show. He's a GM and VP of product management at Box. Before that, he was a director of engineering at Twitter, was a senior manager for Kindle at Amazon, among other roles. And he is a perfect fit for a topic that I've been dying to cover, and that's product strategy. In this episode, we go beyond just a definition of strategy and maybe a couple of frameworks, and instead we decided to use an example of a product that most of us know and love to see if we can work backwards and figure out what that product strategy actually is. We thought this would be a better way to talk through the whys, hows, and whens of strategy instead of just using a framework. I hope you enjoy it. Ibrahim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maggie, for having me. Yes, I'm super excited because today is going to be a little different. I know that, at least for me, product strategy is one of the most requested topics I get for the show. And you mentioned that it's a huge request for your blog, but it's something that it's obviously hard to talk about because you don't want to or can't really give away your whole company strategy just to share how you do it. So instead, you had this amazing idea to talk about product strategy in the context of a product that we all know, but neither of us currently work on. Uh, So we're going to see if we can do a teardown of that product strategy and use that as a way to talk about how to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, I've had a draft blog post that I've been wanting to write for a long time, sort of picking apart how to write strategy, how to pick apart strategy, how to uh, sort of know that your strategy is cohesive and coherent. And I always struggle with it. It's so abstract when you're just talking about a framework that you actually want to do it with a live example. So when, when we talked about doing a podcast together, I was like, I think it's just easier to talk it out than to write it out. Yeah. So, but before we get into it, I want to create some common language. So I just want to hear in your words, what is a product strategy? I think the simplest definition, and and by the way, it's not an original definition. I, I stole it from somebody on Twitter, is basically it's your point of view on where the market is and where the market is going. And I think in that phrasing, you capture so much, which is there's current state and future state. There's a little bit of vision around how you expect it to evolve. I think implicit in that is for whom you are trying to make it involve, right? And then also baked in there is some sort of time horizon on which it will evolve, right? So I think that ultimately, like if you were to mechanically lay out what is a strategy, it's a course of action on how to evolve things in a particular way for a particular persona in a particular time horizon around value. When you're thinking about a strategy and it's hitting on those different pieces, what are the hallmarks of a good strategy? Even, you know, let's assume it hits on those couple of questions that you had, but what do you look for when you want to see, okay, they've actually done that well? Yeah, I think, you know, like we've all gone through sort of creating a strategy or revising a strategy. And I went through one of those exercises recently and I was talking to one of the engineers on the team. We were like, this is pre-COVID. We were in an elevator ride and, you know, from floor four to floor one in, in the span of like 60 seconds, I was able to explain the strategy. He was like, hey, what's what's our strategy? And I explained it and he was like, oh, that's so clear. And it kind of dawned on me is that like when your strategy is clear and cohesive and crisp, it's actually really simple to explain. It makes a lot of sense. It resonates with people. And I think when you get into these gymnastics of trying to prove it or like you have to pull out a chart and graph to sort of make a point, it's like it might be too complex to actually be spot on. Because it sounds like part of the good strategy is not just that it answers those questions, but that it is something you can use to sort of get people excited or bring them along on the journey that you're on in a way that's efficient and quick. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a good strategy is probably adept at aligning people. So yeah, I think buy-in and being easy to understand and feeling intuitive is, is probably elements of a good strategy. Okay. 
So we know what a good strategy is. We know that it's a point of view on where the market is and where it's going. So let's see if we can back into a strategy. And you had picked Twitter DMs. Yes. So, I mean, full disclosure, I, I used to work at Twitter, but I, I worked on the service, the infrastructure, the platform, not on um, you know product-facing features like DMs. But I think most people in the world understand Twitter DMs. And so I figured that'd be an interesting product to sort of dissect and see, try to understand what the strategy actually is and what a, a different strategy might be. Okay. So then let's start at the broadest level. This is at least where I always like to start when I'm thinking about strategy, and that's the mission. I would assume, and actually curious to hear if you agree with it, with me on this, that a strategy has to start with some kind of goal in mind or some reason for why you need a strategy. So when we're looking at Twitter and Twitter DMs, what would you see as the mission? Yeah. So, I mean, you can Google this, which I did before this podcast. You know, Twitter's mission has been public since the company went public in, what, 2014? So six years, which is give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. So that's the mission statement. And I think if you go to their investor relations sites, they actually have a qualifier, which I thought was very interesting. It says, and business and revenue will follow in ways that improve and don't detract from the free and global conversation. So I think the mission statement is pretty clear and inspiring. And when you think of DMs or any other product that Twitter would choose to invest in, you should be able to say, this is how that product connects to that mission. Like it, it should be very simple to say, this is the mission. This is how the product connects to that. And if there's not like a steel thread, you probably have a incoherent investment on your hands. Okay. So then if you were to say how the DM connects to that mission, how would you put it? I guess I'll share an anecdote. Having worked there every six months, there would be like a, what are we going to do about DMs conversation? <laughs> so it's like, I don't think it was ever figured out while I was there. Uh, and again, it's not something I actively worked on. And I still remember like when Jack Dorsey came back as CEO, he sent an email to the whole company. It was something like play around with DMs this weekend, right? And I remember tweeting at the time, like, rip the inbox of whoever the PM is for DMs, right? Because I was like, that person's going to get so much feedback because he was he was saying many things in that email. He was like, I don't think it's quite what it could be. I would love some feedback on what it should be, right? A, maybe this is like an underutilized piece of the product. Like, so he was saying a lot of different things, but I think the strategy was unclear. Okay. So... We didn't know what the strategy was at that point. So I guess maybe the next thing we could look at is what is the current sort of core product value the users are even getting out of the product today? Yeah. So I um, I did a couple of things before this podcast, which is I went through and I basically looked up what DM-related announcements, public announcements on the blog has Twitter made? So basically, what have they shipped? Then I did stuff like you know searching through Google News, uh, like on tech blogs, on like what have people asked for, Right. Like what is the technorati or I believe the Twitterati asking for for DMs, right? And I actually found a bunch of articles, which is like, this is what DMs should be. And then third, I just sat down as, as a user and consumer of the product. I was like, what would actually get me to use and adopt this product a little more? So I kind of broke it out in those three dimensions. And what was interesting to me, the first thing that jumped out was DMs is inherently private messaging. Like the way it's designed is private messaging. It's primarily one-to-one. It does have group support. It now supports other media other than text, but it actually felt like orthogonal to the, the core mission of Twitter, which is this global public conversation, right? So I thought about it for a second. And I was like, there's a world which is like, this just doesn't make any sense. Or the only way I could think to connect it was when you're having a global public conversation, 
sometimes that conversation needs to continue, but not globally or publicly. And so I was like, one way this enhances the the stated mission of the company is this is how you take certain conversations offline or sequester sort of the group of people who are going to continue to participate in that conversation. That was one place where I, where I saw um, sort of a connect the dots between the product and the strategy. And do you see that it comes back online or was it just, you know, some conversations have to go offline and then they park there and that's where they keep going? Yeah. So I started thinking about like, if you just go to the, the Twitter website or the app, they like when you're looking at a tweet, there's a bunch, you can share it and there's a bunch of different ways. And I think it's not recent, but it, it's not it's not been there forever. Like share via DM is in there. And I think that is a nod to you're, you're having a conversation with, with somebody. And a lot of times that conversation will end with like DM me, right? I guess you could just DM the person. And if it's recent, they'll remember. Or you take the thread and you DM the thread to be like, in reference to this, let's follow up one on one, right? And so I think that that continue on DM absolutely is a use case. So it makes a lot of sense. But then there's a bunch of other ways things go offline. SMS, share a link, email, right? And God knows what happens when you email it. And then, and I was thinking about all the other ways people continue conversations. And so what I realized was like one data point, which obviously you and I don't have is what are the top ways that people share tweets to continue the conversation that are not DMs? And in what, what scenario would they do that, right? Like what's the reason why you would send it via email or what's the reason why you'd sort of send it via text and why wouldn't you just continue to use DMs on Twitter? I think there's some obvious answers, which is the people you're sharing with are not on the platform, right? That's one. Right. Okay, so then I'm curious, another angle we could look at it is through an angle of metrics. So we have a sense of what their mission is, we know maybe the role that the DMs play in taking those big public conversations and allowing you to, to take them private. But then what are the looking at the metrics tell you about what the team is up to? You know, every company has sort of their top level metrics, like A, having worked there, and if you just B, look up their earnings. I think there's two big categories of metrics that Twitter cares about. One is usage, right? Which is just like, are people engaging with the product? Uh, and two is revenue, right? And I think DMs have the potential to impact both of those North Star metrics. So usage is a function of users, the conversations that those users are having, whether those users are engaged or unengaged. And then from a revenue perspective, you know, DMs are one way for brands to connect directly with customers, solve customer support issues, generate sort of awareness and sort of like positive feelings around the brand. So I think there is a direct or second order impact to both the usage and revenue top line metrics that the company cares about. I think where it gets tricky is you can sort of take that metric and just apply blanket to the team. So you're like, we care about usage. So what is DM usage? And I think that's that's not quite right because then you get caught up in things like number of active DMers or number of DMs shared or average length of DM, which I mean, I think they're good data curiosity questions, but we go back to what we were doing, which is attempt to try the mission to the product via strategy. I think you'd see, hey, one use case is public conversation needs to go private. So one of the metrics I'd love to have my hands on is how many of those conversations actually go private and then continue and some way to quantify whether they reach their logical conclusion, right? Like there's a, there a thread and then it had to go private and then now it's wrapped versus I think from a user perspective, if there's not a way to complete that loop, then they're sort of dissatisfied. Right. Another question that that makes me think about is, you know, what does good look like for the the conversation? So tying it back to the mission, 
giving everyone the power to create and share ideas. What does good look like for that private conversation? Are they hoping it just, you know, a couple of DMs and it's over or does it lead somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where you probably want to go do some research and and talk to the people who either take conversations offline through another channel or actively use DMs and say like, what was your intent behind it and and what represents done or good in the conversation, right? Right. And you also brought up, I think, through looking at the metrics. So part of the strategy is obviously for for whom. And there was a couple of different categories of, of person or user that you were talking about. So there's consumers and brands, right? Yeah. And I think obviously like you and I as consumers could use DMs or groups of consumers could use DMs. But if you just, you know, when I was mentioning the little bit of research I did, so much of the Twitter as a company messaging around uh, DMs recently has been aimed at enterprises and brands and advertisers, which is this is how you can engage with your customers. This is how you can incorporate into your support channels. This is how you can advertise via DMs. And it was interesting to me, not, almost nothing on the consumer end user side of it, right? So you could take that to be like a strategic focus on that area. But the reality is there is a consumer product, there is a, let's call it a business enterprise product, and there is just like a service element. Like, you know, when I worked at Twitter, I worked on sort of the, the technology that powered a lot of this stuff. So there's there's essentially a DM team that owns DMs as a technology, right? And they're catering both to the consumer product building team and the brand product building team. So really, there's three different quote unquote product teams in play here. And I think you were asking earlier about like, what is good strategy? I think good strategy probably helps dictate coherent org structure. So I think depending on the strategy, there's a version of this where you're like, there's a service team, there's a consumer product team and a brand product team. There's maybe a version of this where you're like, there's one mega team, right? There's probably a version of this, which is like one of these things is a is a sideshow and one of these things is the main bet. So it's like, you know, you you couple the back end to the brand team because you're like, that's really what is driving the innovation and the evolution of the service. And then just to throw a curveball, like as I was reading through my notes, I came up with a completely different idea, which is I think it's strange to take like a, a product tab or a product feature like DMs and try to come up with a strategy for that. The strategy should really be like holistic across the product. And if you just look at some of the other things Twitter has and has released, they've put out more rules around conversation. So now these first used to be for sort of influencers, but then it sort of expanded into everybody, which is you could, you and I could start a conversation and we could set the rules so that only who we allow engages in the conversation, but it's still a public conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Also the concept of protected accounts and protected tweets. And I, I started sort of making like a quadrant, which is there is public conversation that's open for anybody to participate in. Then there's public conversation that is constrained, like the, the creators of the conversation decide. So it's visible, but you know closed in a way. Then there's private conversations, but there's private that's shareable. For example, let's say you're messaging a brand, right? You're like, oh, my flight on Airline X was delayed. I'm so mad. And they're like, we'll give you a voucher. They want to be able to take that DM and put it in their support tool of choice. I don't know, Zendesk, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there is private, but it's shareable with other reps, right? Through the APIs and through embedding. And then there's private and it's just completely hidden. It's like one-on-one, like almost like texting. Like nobody will ever be aware other than a data breach, right? And I was like, there's if you go back to the mission of Twitter, they are trying to enable an entire spectrum of conversation and public open is the default. 
But for security reasons, enablement reasons, coherence reasons, privacy reasons, they want to support public with a closed option, private with a shareable option. And so in that scenario, I was like, you, you can't look at DMs in an absolute sense. You have to look at DMs along with the protected account story, the shareable conversation story, the closed wall conversation story, because in a way, a DM is just like a series of tweets that only a few people can see. That's just another way to think about it in an abstract sense, right? Right. And it's an important point because I, especially as some as a PM, if I put my PM hat on, I think there's a there's a real wish to say, okay, I need to come up with this amazing product strategy for my specific part of the product. But what I'm hearing you say is that the DM is really a tactic that Twitter is using to get at their overall strategy. Yeah. And just thinking about it out loud, I'm, uh, you know, one of the discussions you should have when evaluating strategy is, is that tactic long in the tooth? Is that tactic requiring further investment? Is that tactic actually progressing the way we want it to progress? Or is that tactic sort of need a little bit of rejiggering and then it'll find its footing? So like, you know, I I laid out like you could have a, a enterprise DMs team, a consumer DMs team and a DM service team. There's also a world where you have a, uh, this wasn't the case when I was there, but like a conversations team. It's like, you own conversations as a first class object. You decide whether people want to have more of that conversation openly and publicly, publicly with guardrails or privately, right? And how and where they should continue those conversations and whether consumers or brands matter more in those because people are having all sorts of conversations, right? Right. So then just as a quick aside, when you're thinking about how to set up a team tackling this type of multi, like you could approach the problem in several different ways. How do you think about setting it up the team for success and what's the way that you do it? Because I see this problem all the time, which is you start with the teams and then you think about what they can do based on the way that they're structured, or you look at the strategy and try to get back to the teams. I'm just curious how you would approach it. It's a double-edged sword because just if you take Twitter DMs specifically as an example, there's at least, let's say, one team that owns DMs. Maybe there's two or three still, right? The existence of that team necessitates that team having a quarterly plan, having OKRs, having continued run the business investment. And I think it's tricky because like the hardest conversation is, has this investment outlived its usefulness, right? The flip side is when you're making a net new investment, I think everybody likes to say, and, and just philosophically, I believe in as a product leader, let's give smart people interesting problems and then have them come up with the solutions and we sort of pressure test, right? The reality is you should never sort of willy-nilly make an investment, which is like, hey, we think there might be a private messaging angle to public conversation. Go figure it out. I think you have to give a team guardrails, right? You have to have a hypothesis. You have to sort of give them an investment envelope that allows them to test that hypothesis to a meaningful degree. And you have to put guardrails in terms of resourcing and time and metrics and say, this is what I expect to see in this time horizon for me to feel like this investment was worth it. Otherwise we backtrack. Right. And so I think that's how I would look at it, which is like, what are we trying to do? The pool of investment is actually across probably the tweets team, the conversations team, the DMs team, the consumer side, the enterprise side. And I'd step back and say, what are we trying to do with conversations? It's fun and easy to say, hey, Twitter is for everybody. Anybody can participate in a conversation. But the reality is probably some conversations matter more, right? From a generating service awareness and quality of content, and for something that sort of will generate advertising views and and brand investment, there are conversations that matter more. And if I were to simplify I'd say probably conversations between quote unquote leaders or domain experts are more important than random conversations, right? And so like 
I mean, you could technically plan with your group of friends what movie to watch on Twitter, but is that is that something that Twitter wants to go out of its way to enable? Or is, I don't know, a bunch of virologists and data scientists arguing about the best way to tackle COVID a very interesting conversation that you want to enable? I read this stat, and I don't know if it's like a pseudo stat or a real stat, which is like any scientific field in the world, artificial intelligence to data privacy to, I don't know, cancer treatment you will find 50 to 80% of the world's leading experts on Twitter. Really? Yes. So, and it was from some investors. So I like, again, it's, I don't know if the 80%. I like it. Let's, let's assume it's good. Let's go with it. So yeah, it works. <laughs> if I were, if I were quote unquote, this hypothetical conversations team, I'd say, not only do I want to enable conversations to whatever degree we can enable them, I want to enable them for this group of people. I don't want to email them for Bob and Joe, right? And so I would actually sort of give that team a mandate of like, not only go fix conversations, quote unquote, and figure out the private dimension to conversations, but do it for these very influential people because they have a disproportionate amount of sort of advertising generatable tweets on their hands. And they are the things that people will take these tweets and these threads and embed them on other sites all over the place and be like, look at the conversation that's happening on Twitter. Like one of the funniest things, um, it just, I always shake my head is my wife will always show me tweets on different platforms. She'll be like, look at this amazing thing my friend texted me. And it's like a screenshot of a tweet or they're on Instagram or they're on WhatsApp. And it blows my mind because I'm like, the conversation is happening on Twitter, but because the strategy doesn't allow them to take the conversation off platform, they are not benefiting from that, right? Right. And it actually sounds like you've circled around to the part of the strategy, which is where it's going for Twitter as a whole. So you've said kind of, okay, we think that the where the market is, is there's too much just sort of unrestrained conversation. So we want to enable more ways to take it private. And where we think it's going is different types of, you know, public or closed or private, whatever you want to call it, for a certain group of people that might be different from where they started. Is that the right way to read this? Yeah. And I think that I think that is a qualified enough hypothesis that I would want to hand to a product pod and say, go tease this out, right? And like I'm happy to be proven wrong or or feel free to refine the idea. You know, I, like I said, I looked at what the technical press had said. Occasionally every six months there's an article saying like Twitter needs a standalone messaging app, right? And I thought about it and I was like, in what world would somebody take a public Twitter conversation want to con- continue it in a different private messaging channel and that needs to be a separate app right cuz the articles are always like look at what whatsapp is doing look at what imessage is doing and i was like but those are def- designed to be inherently one to one you know the person communication versus twitter is much more of a serendipitous topical conversation right it's like you it's not a planned conversation and so What's interesting is like, A, if if you have a coherent strategy, you can immediately shoot down some of those ideas, which is like, we don't need to build a standalone app. But I think there's a kernel of an interesting idea, which is why is the default view of Twitter the public conversation that I'm not participating in? Could the default view be conversations that I'm participating in? And if DMs are just tweets that are have different visibility constraints, could there be a view that's like DM only or DM primary, right? Mm. I've never seen this, but I think those are some of the things a team might experiment with is like, could we have a more conversation centric view versus, you know, consumer centric feed view, right? Two is depending on how well we know you, depending on whether you like to default to open public, 
public constrained or public private, maybe you'd set up those guardrails. Like if you if you read a lot of the blog posts that have come out from the company, so many of them are not even product announcements. They're explanations for how to use the product. There's like, are you aware that we have a 10,000 character limits? Are you aware that you can put pictures and GIFs in there? Are you aware that you have to turn on I'm available to DM as a setting because it's not on by default? And I was like, that's so interesting. If I were like one of the experiments I would try is if I'm a verified Twitter user, maybe I default that person to, to receive DMs, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there's a lot of stuff you can do. By the way, one more random idea, like that example of somebody texting a DM to somebody, I think that's a great scenario where you almost try to use DMs as a way to bring people on platform. So you acknowledge that they're t- that they're going off platform, but you try to create a hook and say, "Hey, you got you're getting content from a service called Twitter. We know what your cell phone number is. Do you want us to do you just want to reply to this text message and then it'll turn into a DM thread and you'll be signed up and on the platform, right?" Yeah, I think it's also another way to engage a different type of person because I I would this is purely so super biased on my own experience on Twitter, but it it sounds from what I've seen from from hu- hugely verified people who've been on the platform forever that Twitter in the early days was a much more organic, lots of people talking to different people. But now, if we believe that the shift is towards these verified super users and we're building features for them, then the DM is a way to actually still give the regular person a place to have like a semi-public conversation on this cool app when they they don't feel like there's a way for them to engage with those, you know, blue check people. Yeah. I've been a Twitter user for like over 10 years now. And in my head, I have like my three favorite tweets ever. And they all involve me serendipitously connecting with somebody way more famous than me. Right. Right. For all the Arrested Development fans out there, I cooked something one time and I was like, now that's how you make a stew. And Carl Weathers, it's a line that he says in the show, he responded. <laughs> oh, wow. I was just like, oh my God, I have arrived. And I <laughs> when you throw up guardrails around that kind of serendipity, it really screws up the product, right? So I think to, to go back to that example, like the DM team probably has a metric, which is like number of active DMers, right? Or number of DMs that they're maniacally trying to drive. But if they had a different metric, like I don't think the idea that they could even be an activation and onboarding mechanism for net new users would have even dawned on them because they don't they don't see themselves as continuing the conversation. They see themselves as like the messaging arm of Twitter. Oh, interesting. So so the way that it's set up, you see it is not really a fully end-to-end experience. It's more like a different, just a totally separate product. Yeah. Again, I haven't worked there in, in three plus years. So like they may have combined things, but you know, DMs was its own beast. And so- right. There's a lot of like, uh, where does it fit? Or And if it doesn't fit, it's like you do your own thing, right? Okay. So just to round out the strategy that we're trying to fill out here, I'm curious to go maybe back a step. Like if we're talking about DM as a tactic and we kind of have started talking about where we think the, the company is going, where do you think the first part is? So where the where is the market today and what are they reacting to that's causing them to go in that direction? Yeah, I mean, if I just... Again, we're trying to reverse engineer a coherent strategy from a series of public announcements. I would say two things are happening. One is they might say the DM product is feature complete. It's enough for product market fit because a lot of their messaging has been around enablement. And just like if you tweak the setting, if you follow these rules, you'll have a great DM experience, right? So on the consumer side, it, it I interpret it as they're like, DMs just works. 
Like we just need to make people aware and steer them to the experience, which is when you see something like share tweet via DM, I'm like, that's a nod to that, which is like, we see you trying to continue the conversation. Here you go. You don't see a lot of random DM specific features other than one thing, which is I saw one posting was about there's rumors or like some users have been exposed to Twitter is experimenting with audio. And I think that's very interesting, which is like, if you think about like one of the ways where DMs end, like, you know, I've seen DMs or, or tweets end, which is like, people are talking and they're like, let me call you, right? And it's like, well, what if you didn't have to call them? What if from Twitter, you just like record an audio note? Would that be, it would have to be private, right? Like you wouldn't want to publicly share that. So like one of the thoughts that jumped in my mind was, I was like, if they're experimenting with audio, I wonder if it starts with DMs before it even gets to the main public tweet service, right? So that's one. I guess it's very unclear where the consumer DM product is going based on their public messaging. On the flip side, based on all the messaging around what brands and advertisers can do, it's clear there is a push to onboard and enable every advertiser to use it as a support tool, which is like your customers are here. They're giving you feedback. This is how you filter out the noise. This is how you can embed it into your tool of choice. This is how you can consume it into your omni-channel experience. So there's tons of product and go-to-market enablement around that, it seems. Do you think that there's probably a strategy for just the regular consumer teams and the specific people who are thinking about brands? I could interpret it a couple of different ways. You know, One is possibly the DM team is part of the organization that does the advertising branding product side of the house, which leads to that focus, which that's not about strategy. That's like org structure dictating focus, right? That's one. Two is you've seen a lot of investments around guardrails around conversation and protecting the safety of the conversants, right? So I'm like, at some point, it almost feels like they're like, the conversation should be public with guardrails versus private, right? That's another way interpret like that is a strategic choice they made, but they left DMs alive because they're like, it has value for brands who don't want to do support publicly, right? Mm. Is that where DMs started? I actually don't know where DMs started. I know a lot of OG Twitter stories, but I don't know the origin of DMs, unfortunately. It would be crazy if it did. I, I mean, anything is possible given that I have no background and I'm making everything up, but it would be super interesting if it did start because of brands wanted it. I just would have assumed that it was something that was just a natural sort of consumer person to person thing. No, I mean, anecdotally, before I worked at Twitter, you know, I'm a big like, I demand customer service on a lot of things. And I would call a lot of her numbers when things broke. And at some point, I realized Twitter was a great way to do that. Because you're like, I've been on hold. Like I'm at the airport, my flight is 11 hours delayed. I'm on hold for two hours. I would just send a tweet saying, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to refrain from saying an airline. Like, I can't believe you're making me wait. And they would, they'd be like, please enable DMs. We'll DM you right away. And then they'd be like, we're so sorry. Here's the ticket. And I'm like, what? And so it was a great unknown customer support channel that they were almost over-indexed on, right? But the last few times I've tried it, there's been no response. So either brands have sort of abandoned it or there's so much noise that they're not able to, like at some point brands are like, okay, we got a million people complaining about this. We got to make sure our frequent flyers are addressed, not some random Yahoo on Twitter, right? Right. So I think that could be a nod to what Twitter is trying to do. They're trying to make brands, make it easier for brands to filter out the signal from the noise. Okay. So we have probably too many different options, too many different inputs, a bunch of different 
possible use cases and users that we're talking about. If you were coaching a group of PMs or a product leader, whoever, on how to clarify this, like what would your suggestion be to them if, if they were kind of looking at all these inputs and needed to come up with something coherent? So the first thing I'd say is, you know, a lot of times there's these moments where it's like, we need to get clear on the strategy. And then you and I talked about this when we first connected, which is people will immediately jump to a framework and they'll, okay, here's the framework. Let's try to fit what we're trying to do, right? So when I was at Twitter, the framework in Vogue was jobs to be done. So it was like every team have a jobs to be done, right? I've worked with a lot of ex-Salesforce people. They'll bring along a framework called V2Mom, right? Vision, values, metrics, obstacles, something else. And so uh, people will immediately be like, let me fill out this framework. And I guess that's a long-winded way of answering your question, which is whenever I have a team that's like, hey, what do we do? I'm like, you need to get quality input and worry less about the framework. So don't worry that our annual planning cycle is in two weeks. Don't worry that this is the, you know, slides are the preferred format. Worry about the quality of input and then we can fit it to whatever framework, right? And input in this is market analysis, user research, customer anecdotes, happy customers, unhappy customers, your own sort of take on on the market and point of view, and then your take removing yourself as sort of a biased user, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because that's back to where we started. To have a real strategy, you need to have your own point of view on a set of facts, which is how I would interpret where the market is today, which is what you just mentioned, which is, of course, your current customers. I would say also, if you're working B2B like I do, your competitors, you know, what your current customers are saying, et cetera. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, when you say point of view on the market, it's another way of saying like, what are the headwinds and the tailwinds, right? It's not just how do you see user behavior or brand behavior evolving, but it's what is your rationale for that, right? And and the answers to those things have to be like the proliferation of mobile devices or, you know, good bandwidth being more readily available, right? Or video, people becoming more comfortable videoing themselves or others, right? Like, I think there's things like that that you have to answer for versus like 11 customers have asked for videos and DMs. We got to do it, right? Right. Yeah, we like to joke about needing to have a global megatrend backing a big bet that we want to make as a way to kind of get around that. If we can point to messaging or like you said, video, then for us, that's that's a shortcut for how we know we're going to be on the right track. So just as we're on a short aside here, I think probably what I want to do now is kind of see if I can we can wrap up this Twitter strategy that we've kind of danced around and then move into the tips and tricks. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover on Twitter? I think the the last thing I'd say is, you know, I, I after attempting to have this conversation and preparing for this conversation, have a lot of empathy for whoever is in charge of DMs. Because at different points, I was like, DMs is not a thing. Like they should kill it. And at various points, I was like, DM is is the missing piece to completing, you know, conversations that start publicly. And I went in a full circle of like, there's there shouldn't be a DM team to there should be a DM team to DMs should be folded in. There should be a mega conversation team that owns public, private, everything. Right. And at the end of it, I I, I netted out nowhere other than to say, based on what's publicly available, it's hard to it, going to my first point about like strategy should be obvious. It's not obvious what is happening. I don't know if that means the strategy doesn't exist or it's incoherent or, you know, two sides are trying to do two different things or it's not executing well, but it's it's not coming across super clearly. Yeah, I have the same thing. A, doing my own research and B, reading through your notes as well, because it sort of felt like there's, it depends on which 
personally, I think it w- I would go all the way back to the top and say, I think it depends on which mission or which goal we're talking about. Because if I think you could look at DMs in the context of something for consumers, something for brands, something around support, and the different types of conversations that maybe Twitter cares about. So just the regular people chatting with each other versus like, you like the DM store or the Twitter story you told us about getting someone famous to respond to you. So I would imagine like depending on which lens you're looking at, I bet DM the DM's product would play a different role. Yeah. So I mean, if I were on the leadership team, like I think to make the product team's life easier, just being clear on the thesis helps. Like you asked the question, like, hey, did DM start for brands? I think if even to say something that simple, like this is to enable brands to have private conversations with their you know users, that would be super clarifying for that team. Because then they'd stop sort of messing around with the consumer side of the house, right? I don't know if anybody has said that or with that level of conviction, but it at least hasn't been publicly messaged. Right. That brings up a question for me. So would you expect that type of a statement to be coming from leadership and then the product team to kind of take that and try to break it down? When you're working with a team, how do you sort of help them use strategy or are they creating strategy? Like, how do you guys do it? Yeah. So I think it would actually be the opposite ideally of what you said, which is the team would arrive at that conclusion. But then what the leadership team can do is make it okay for that to be the conclusion. Like pressure tested, validated, make sure the thinking and the rationale are rock solid. But I wouldn't expect the leadership team to like have that aha because they're not living in the data day in and day out of who's using DMs, what are they complaining about DMs, who's not using DMs, right? And so I think leadership job is when people come to you with unintuitive or maybe not yet intuitive conclusions, it's to really continue the conversation and say, let's tug on that thread. What are you arriving at? And make it okay to say like, hey, possibly we need to divest in this or we need to really invest in this for it to be a thing or we need to reframe this investment for it to live up to its full potential, right? I think that's the leadership's job. Right, and then I think to set, I've always found it to be helpful when the leadership team sets, you mentioned guardrails earlier. I I kind of think about it as like a scaffold. So some kind of structure in which I can operate, setting a couple of constraints and making a couple of choices that make it easier to focus and to do really good research. I've always found that to be helpful. Yeah. I mean, like when we started, we talked about, you know, at a top level usage and revenue are two top level things. I think it's pretty straightforward for leadership to say, I'm making this up, you know, we have to grow you by X percent in the next two years or usage by Y percent in the next 18 months. And it's like, we're going to invest in this messaging product because we think it's going to drive usage or revenue. Right. And so it gives the team that scaffolding, like you said, but it also sort of highlights, like, if it's not working, we have a ripcord we can pull. Right. Mm hmm. So along those lines, how do you think about pressure testing or validating a strategy? This is a conversation I had with someone, I think if I remember remembering correctly, at work a couple of months ago, and we had this idea, and then we had this moment where it was like, okay, so we think this this could play out, but now what? So how do you help teams do that? So I have many different answers to your question, but I'll give you a few. The first is, I think there's a difference between pressure testing the strategy and feeding a decision into the strategy. So when I say feeding a decision, it's kind of like, you know, in the old days, you'd feed the fax machine a piece of paper. It's it's like that. So I think a good, coherent, clear, rigorous strategy, you can feed it any product idea and it'll spit out and it'll say yes, no, or later, right? And it'll be like on the time horizon. And so that, like, I think of strategy as a machine, which you're like, 
if we had a clear DM strategy, somebody would come along and say, voice DMs. And we'd say, yes, no, or not now, but at this point after we've done ABC, right? That, that would be a great strategy is it could, any product idea could be pressure tested. How do you actually pressure test the strategy itself? There's a bunch of different things. First is every company has its differentiators, right? So I think any viable strategy has to be based on your differentiators. If the strategy is like, this is hot in the market, so we can win because other people in the market are doing this, that's not going to work because other than like oodles of investment, what do you have going, right? It's like, how are you taking advantage of what makes us unique, right? So depending on whatever consumer enterprise product line you're in, your differentiators are going to be security or performance or usability or whatever. So any strategy has to layer on that or have a take that we're going to become world-class at that, right? So first thing I like to test is like, I know what our differentiators are as a product leader. Are you taking advantage of those with the strategy or not? If not, it's probably not a viable strategy for us. It might be a viable strategy for a different company, right? Mm -hmm. There's two terms I love. One I learned at Twitter, it's called cargo culting, which is when you take a cultural practice from somebody else and you just like, we're going to do that, right? So for example, like, MAU divided by D or DAU divided by MAU. Like that's a metric that we care about. Let's just, that, that number has to go up. And it's like, why does that number matter to us? Right? Well, it's like a lot of, uh, you know, hot companies are doing it that we should do it. So that's, that's cargo culting. So I think whenever people start cargo culting, I, I call BS on that. The other is I follow this writer. He has a blog called divinations on Substack. It's a, it's a strategy blog. He has this amazing term. It's called strategy drunk, mm-hmm. which is, when you fall in love with the strategy in an academic abstract sense, right? Like when you draw these beautiful funnels and these loops and you're like, firstly, you do this and then they'll become more engaged and then they'll spread it like wildfire and then we'll upsell the hell out of it. And it's like, that sounds great in an academic sense. What market validation do you have? What customers can you point to that actually have gone through that trajectory? What proof do you have that we are able to build a product that actually drives that kind of user behavior, right? And so I love strategy. Like the, one of the things I'll ask my team is like, are, are we getting strategy drunk here? So, mm-hmm. so that's one. Three is I think good strategy, like I mentioned earlier, makes organizational design clear. Like you're like, okay, not only is the strategy clear, but to execute on this, I know I ha- how I have to line up the dominoes. So let's go. Versus if you look at a strategy and you're like, I don't see any way to actually coherently execute on this, right? Then something is wrong. And then the last thing I'd say is coherence, which is, we try to plan strategy cross-functionally, but then investment and management and buy-in happens functionally, which is super tricky. So like in our DMs example, let's say there is a consumer DMs team and ads DMs team and a DM service team, right? And let's say the consumer DMs team is like, we got to make it easy to toggle between public and private conversations. So just like privacy around conversation, the ads team is like, we need voice in DMs, right? And then the team is getting hit with both those requests. And separately on the engineering side, that team has not been invested in in this planning cycle. That's incoherent, right? It's like, if you want DMs to be a thing, both on the consumer side and the advertiser side, and you're not investing in the service that powers those, you have strategic misalignment. And where that comes out usually is long past planning. When you do your quarterly OKRs, it's like, hey, I need you to do these things. And it's like, we can barely keep the lights on. And it's like, oops, right? And so I think good strategy has that coherence organizationally. 
Yeah, I love all those points. And I especially want to come back to the strategy drunk one because I think what can be really tricky is if you have, and I've been in the situation where someone has put together a strategy and it sounds really great, like you mentioned, and it hangs together really well and you can totally understand how it would work, but you have this weird feeling that's like, I want to know what the assumptions are and the data and the research, but I don't know how to like fit that in because it's so logically tied together and crisp. And that's like a a feeling that I try to look out for when I'm looking at something, which is, okay, does this just look good? Is there anything that, do I know of any facts that would back this up? Or like, how would I ask a question of the strategy just to see if it works? Because I think I'm often in the position, maybe unlike you, where I'm I'm getting the strategy and I'm like, okay, well now what? What do I do about this? And I have a weird, if I have a weird reaction to it, that's often maybe because one of the things that you're mentioning has happened and I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. Yeah. By the way, one thing I'll say is there is a time and place for being strategy dunk, like for having complete greenfield, blue sky vision, which is you're starting a new company, right? Like those people should be strategy drunk. They're like, we can do anything because you have no existing legacy product, no assumptions, no customers, no drama, no churn, no nothing, right? So you should be strategy drunk. But I think for an existing product that it can get you in trouble because you're like, it all sounds great, but what about the customers we have? And, you know, the hypothetical churn and the upsells we could do, um, that's what makes it complicated. The last thing I would say is choice is very important in strategy. Like when a strategy is so straightforward, where you're like, oh, this is so obvious. Obvious is good, but it's like, what is a also kind of obvious, but not right for us choice that we could have made, right? Because when, when there's like no choices, that's not strategy. That's like compulsion, right? It's like your fallback. And so I love to understand the alternatives and why those could be true, but we're not choosing those because we think it's less likely to be true or we think we're less likely to succeed. So I want alternate strategies that make sense for other companies or other orgs and not us, or could make sense for us, but are lower probability. So we, we chose the higher probability one, right? Because I, I like to have a question because the team is like, well, we could do this, but that would require investing 10 new engineers. And I'm like, okay, let's say that's an option. Then would you do that strategy? And it's like, yeah, totally. So it's like, let's not, let's not, I want to know what the alternatives are because I, I I have access to certain decisions that I can make, right? Right. Yeah. And another question I like to ask is what has to be true about the world for this to work? And that I found just framing it that way can get people to think about, oh, well, we're going to have to finish this. And then it, I found that that question also helps maybe developers come up with some of the technical constraints that may not have been surfaced because they're going to say, you know, oh, well, to do that, I'm go- definitely going to have to go and fix this thing. And you might not have known about that. I love that framing of it because it reminds you that you're operating in this larger context with other products competitors, your own technical constraints, your own staffing constraints. Because if you don't do that, then you fall into this trap of like forgetting that there's a multi-month, year, quarter horizon that you should be thinking about. Like we didn't talk about time horizons, but a good strategy probably has some sort of time horizon, right? It's not open-ended because otherwise you would never know when to pull the plug. Because you're like, I'm going to do ABC and it's going to lead to outcome XYZ in the next two years, right? And if you've done your input rigorously, you should have a good reasoning on what that time frame is going to be, right? Right. Okay. So then probably I think my last question is what do you think done looks like when you're doing this exercise? So I think depending on what your market is, you know, like there's always a market and then people redefine their market or outgrow their market or tackle adjacent markets. So I don't think you're ever done with your strategy. Your strategy just keeps evolving to solve the most compelling problem that's in front of your face. I love to cite blogs that I read there. There's a guy that I read who's like brilliant, probably 
this is just hard to understand for me sometimes. His name is Eugene Wei, and he writes this blog called Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. He has this concept called the invisible asymptote, which is every product, every company has this invisible boundary that you're not going to be able to break through because that is your asymptote. And what you're really trying to do with your strategy is outmaneuver that asymptote. So for example, he used to work at Amazon and he tells this great story about the asymptote was shipping costs. No matter what you do, at some point, certain people are like, I'm not going to buy because I don't want to pay for shipping. So even though it costs me gas or time or my own mental health, I'm going to go wait in line at a physical retail store because I will not pay shipping, right? And what could Amazon have done to get through that asymptote of unwillingness to pay shipping costs, right? And if you look in the early days, they innovated and tried so many things to break through that asymptote. If you order X dollars, free shipping, right? If you buy add-on items, free shipping. And the invention of Prime was a direct reaction to flipping the conversation, which is you're paying this like cool subscriber service also includes free shipping, right? So if you think about it, like your strategy is to get past point X, which you're like, if I can get past that point, I have astronomical growth, right? And then your strategy is successfully, you do that. And then you find the next asymptote, right? And so I think they mostly solve shipping. Like, you know, I, I used to work at Amazon and I talked to the team once in a while and like they think in 10 year horizons. And so I was like, what's next? And they're like, we have to solve returns. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you buy a thing, you don't want to go to UPS or FedEx to return it. You just want to leave it outside your door and not even package it. And just, it disappears and you get a refund. <laughs> and yep. and I was like, okay, because they had identified returns, the overhead of returns as an asymptote. So to answer your question of like, when is a strategy done? A particular iteration of a strategy gets you to that next logical asymptote. And then you need a next rev when you've identified the next asymptote. Got it. And so whose job is it, do you think, to identify those asymptotes? This this is tricky because I think it varies based on the size and structure of your product team, right? Because there, I mean, obviously there are startups, there are scale-ups, there are scaled companies, there are huge behemoths, right? I think having had many different PM titles, I would say somewhere between group PM and director is the best strategy work you're going to do. What I mean by that is, again, I have a draft blog post I haven't published yet. Let's call it hypothetical PM ladder, which is there's you have APM, you have PM12, you have senior PM. In those roles, you're shipping. And a lot of times your success is, did you ship? How much did you ship? Did you ship quality? And if you're if you're early on, you might not even understand what you're doing. You're just like, I have to ship this thing because it somehow matters, right? And as you grow towards senior PM, you start to realize, well, why does it matter? And can I connect the dots? And can I do that for myself and for my engineers and my designers and my marketers? And that's where you plateau. And I think once you break through that, to, to use an earlier term, asymptote, you're like, hold on, what is the strategy behind all this? Mm-hmm. Why do I even need to connect these dots? Why do these d- dots matter for our company and the market we're in, right? And I think somewhere around group PM, you really find your strategy muscle and you're like, I'm starting to have opinions on what market we're in, how that market's going to evolve, the best way to connect the dots and which dots are worth connecting and not. And I think a director, you really have the portfolio to sort of do that in multiple areas, right? But then when you get into like real product leadership, the job becomes org management and storytelling and having cross-functional peers uh, align, like align with engineering on investment, align with marketing on messaging, align with sales on metrics, right? Align with what are we doing at our conference and things like that. And you strangely actually 
get a little bit away from the day-to-day of like, what market are we in and how do we do this correctly and what's the best way? Because you're just far enough removed from having the data and the intuition to make you dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. I'm actually forgetting your original question, but <laughs> what was it again? Well, I mean, you're you're absolutely answering it. I think I've also forgotten what my question was because I'm so excited. Oh, I asked you who who does the strategy, mostly because you started talking about directors, and I'm like, oh, that's me. Okay, great, I get to do the thing. Yeah, so I um, I think you know I think somewhere between group and director are the people who stitch together the the strategy. I think the executives really polish the strategy and disseminate it for the masses, right? So like just speaking for my myself, my team actually puts together a lot of good strategic thinking. I crystallize it and synthesize it in a way that I can go talk to 100 sales reps and be like this is what we're doing, right? But it's like I, I we're probably co-masterminds of the strategy and my job is more synthesis and dissemination and their job is more analysis and synthesis, right? Right. Almost like you're the editor. I like not and the editor, yeah. Or the curator is how I like to think of myself. So yeah, I think there is actually like a spectrum of PMs whose strategic thinking is more valuable than others. It's not to say that like if you're the solo PM, you know, at a startup that you shouldn't be doing strategy, or if you're the chief product officer, you shouldn't be doing strategy. I'm just saying in most orgs that I've seen, there's a sweet spot where you talk to enough customers, see enough data, partner closely enough with engineering and design and marketing, your strategic thinking cap is at the right aptitude and aperture Versus I think sometimes it gets too wide and sometimes it gets too narrow. Right. All right. So we could, I mean, I know I could continue to talk about this for forever, but we are running out of time. So I think my last question for you would be any advice to people who are maybe in that sweet spot, whose job it is, or who have the opportunity to put together a strategy, any advice for them on on what to do, especially if it's their first time? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times where IP people struggle is they've done the thinking, they've done the analysis, they have conviction but they struggle to convey that conviction to actually influence the decision makers to actually execute on that, or at least go with that plan, right? I think there's two issues there. One is it shouldn't be that way. Like ideally, if you're the person best positioned to create and execute on a strategy, you should get to do it versus having to get a bunch of other people lined up. But let's say that's the nature of of cross-functional leadership these days. The second is I would ask them not to get despondent or lose hope, but actually think critically about how do decisions get made in your company, in your organization, right? There's always some way where ideas become action. Some companies are very data-driven. Some companies are logo-driven. Some companies are customer reaction-driven. Some companies are anecdotal-driven. Some companies like a six-pager. Some companies like a great slideshow at an all-hands. Figure out the way ideas get greenlit and then take all the thinking you've done and package it in that way and try that. And if, and if it still doesn't get green lid, then you can get this money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think about that all the time, the storytelling and making sure your your format and your organization matches whoever it is that you're talking to because you're, you're just going to give yourself a higher chance of success at whatever it is that you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think of product as like a cross-functional leadership role and you are storytelling in different mediums. You're storytelling to engineering, to executives, to marketing, to sales, to design. And I think getting better at telling the same story in fresh and new and novel ways so that your audience can consume it is probably 80% of the job. Awesome. Well, that's a perfect place to end it. Ibrahim, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for having me on, Maggie. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button, drop me a six-star only review, and let me know what you think. 
Or if you have a topic you'd want me to cover, a guest I should interview, send me a note at maggie at drift.com. Super appreciate everyone for listening. Thanks. Thanks.